Today's episode is proudly sponsored by the Rising Tide Mastermind. Each and every year, the Rising Tide Mastermind gets together in Atlanta for a live event. This is one of the most anticipated events within the Rising Tide Mastermind. Normally, we have a Zoom call each and every week, but this is where we all come together and we become better friends. We learn more about each other and we help each other with their issues. It is my favorite thing and I'm sure it is going to be your favorite thing to look forward to if you were a member of the Rising Tide Mastermind. That could be a possibility to find out if the Rising Tide Mastermind is right for you and you are right for the Rising Tide Mastermind. Go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind and you can schedule a 15-minute call with me to find out more. Welcome to the Scaling Up H2O podcast, the podcast where we scale up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. I'm Trace Blackmore, and I am super excited to bring you today's show. And of course, we are right in the middle of December, and that means there are only nine shopping days left before Christmas. Now, if you're not listening to this episode right when it comes out, you have even less And that made me think, why do we always count shopping days till Christmas? And that's because we all love to procrastinate. And procrastinating gift shopping is one of the number one procrastinated tasks that we share as a community. And don't believe me, I Googled this and that's where it came up. So with that, there are so many people that wait until the very last minute to buy their gifts. And that is why the last week of the Christmas holiday is always the busiest week for shopping days. And that's out of the entire holiday season. That's even after Black Friday, which is right after Thanksgiving when they put all the deals out and Cyber Monday when they put all the deals out. The number one ranked volume for shopping is always the very last week. In fact, they call the Saturday before Christmas, and that's going to take place December 23rd this year. That is the number one shopping day of the entire year where all the procrastinators are getting their gifts. That's the busiest shopping day of the year. That just got me thinking that we're a world of procrastinators. And I was wondering why. So, of course, I used my friend Google And I found an article by Dr. Joseph Maselli, and he was saying, this is actually a quote, the brain makes wise decisions for our survival, but the executive function of our brains has been changed from being an industrialized society for having more pleasurable distractions around. So he thinks what's happened is our brains have enabled us to get distracted by things that will take us off task, but that doesn't necessarily kill us. So not buying the gift is not going to kill us, 
but stepping out in front of a bus will. So our brain's doing a good job at that. So there you go. That's what Dr. Maselli says. And maybe you can do a better job planning next week. Maybe you enjoy Super Saturday. Maybe you enjoy standing in line or waiting in traffic at the shopping malls. And if that is your thing, there is no judgment here. I have to tell you, I'm a big planner and I'm only a big planner because I just don't like wasting time and I I just like to be productive in most everything that I do and I cannot stand waiting in line. I can't stand traffic, things like that. No, I don't get any road rage or anything like that. I normally listen to books on tape and I try to multitask while I'm doing something like that. But I take advantage fully of the Cyber Monday if I don't have to leave the comfort of my environment to get gifts for my loved ones. You better believe I am going to take advantage of that. You know, a great gift that you can give yourself is by going to Audible and you can uh, you actually listen to books while you're waiting in traffic. You can do it while you're waiting in line. I really prefer if you meet somebody new, but I know we don't always do that. So you can listen to a chapter or two or eight while you're waiting in line with all of your closest friends buying your last minute holiday gifts. We've got a free book and a free month we can give you by going to scalinguph2o.com forward slash audible. And here's something a lot of people don't know, and maybe you're already an Audible subscriber. Audible each and every month will put free books, that's right, free books. You don't have to buy, you don't have to use a credit and you can download those for your library. So something that I put, and yes, I have a task for it in my calendar, each and every month I will go through Audible, I will put in free books, there's actually a category for that, and I will do some quick searches in categories that I like, and I always bolster my library. Now I will tell you those are normally the last books that I listen to, But I've also found some gems on there that I would have never listened to, but because they were free, I have now recommended these books to people that I coach, the mastermind, and I never would have found them before if I didn't look on Audible. Another thing that you can do with Audible is you might not want to use a credit. Now, your monthly subscription, whatever you're paying for that, that's how much a credit is. You might find a book that's only $3. My advice is you go ahead and pay the $3 there and not use your credit and use a credit on a more expensive book. And I've heard a lot of members are using Audible that way so they can get the most out of their subscription. And of course, the last tip about Audible is perhaps you can increase the speed in which you listen. And I had a challenge earlier this year to go ahead and increase the speed of my Audible. That was episode 292 when we introduced the nation to Scott Walsniak. 
And he was listening to his books on 3.5. And you heard my disbelief on episode 292. And he actually held up his audible uh, from his phone to his microphone. And you can hear how fast it was. And I told him there was absolutely no way he understood that. Scott proved to me that not only can he listen at that rate of speed, he actually takes notes too, and he showed me some of the net outs that he did for each and every book that he listened to. Now, I'm still not up to 3.5 speed, but I do listen at 2.5 speed, and that has really increased the number of books that I am able to read. And yes, folks, I actually do get the content at that speed. And I started doing the same thing that Scott did. And I started writing net outs on some key points and things about that book. So when I'm trying to organize my thoughts, maybe for this show, maybe it is an event that I want to do and I want to talk about a particular book, I now have easy notes to access and that's just been a game changer for me. So maybe not only we can help some people shop a little bit earlier this year, we can help people with their reading while they do it. I want to make sure something you don't procrastinate on is signing up for The Hang that's taking place January 11th. That's going to be at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. So wherever you are around the world, go ahead and join us for The Hang. We have people from Ireland. We have people from the United Kingdom. We've had people from Australia. We've had people from China. And of course, we have people from the United States joining us on The Hang. And The Hang is just such a wonderful thing. If you haven't been on one, that's where we get together each and every quarter. And we just meet other water treatment professionals. We do some fun activities while we're on The Hang. And then I put you in smaller breakout rooms so you can not only meet each other, you can talk about little topics that we bring up during The Hang. And I have heard so many success stories where people share that they were able to solve an issue because of people they met on the hang and they had particular expertise of what they were having an issue with. So this has just been a great thing to host. We've been doing this since 2020 and it is going strong, but we need you. So how do you sign up for The Hang? You can go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash hang. We'll have all the information that you want to know and a registration link. So I hope to see you on that hang. Some other events you might want to put on your calendar is the 2024 Annual Conference and CTI Expo. That, of course, is the Cooling Technology Institute. And that is taking place in Houston, Texas, February 4th through 8th. We're going to have all the information that you need on that on our events page. And then the WQA, that's the Water Quality Association Business Boot Camp, is taking place March 4th in Orlando, Florida. And this is a day set aside for people to step away from working in their businesses to focus on working on it. To learn more about this, you can go to our events page. 
Nation, we are always trying to bring guests to you so you can learn more and more about our industry. So you leave each and every podcast so much smarter and so much more well-equipped as an industrial water treater. Here's our interview. My lab partner today is Bill Kennedy of Stantec. Welcome to the Scaling Up H2O podcast, Bill. Well, thank you. Excited to be here and looking forward to chatting. We're going to learn a lot today on the Scaling Up H2O podcast. But before we get into today's topic, do you mind telling the Scaling Up Nation a bit about yourself? Sure. Well, Bill Kennedy, I'm a consulting chemical process engineer with Stantec, and I lead our industrial water practice. I enjoy problem solving and have a real passion for inorganic chemistry. Uh, And that passion was ignited in me by my high school chemistry teacher. And if you don't mind, I'm going to give a shout out to him, uh, Mr. Dan Holmquist. Uh, That was 40 some years ago, and he had a real impact on me and really influenced on what I'm doing and what I am today. So, but. And I really enjoy mentoring the next generation of engineers and scientists, and that's who I am. You know, you mentioned teachers, and I can look back. Uh, My father was primarily responsible for me getting into this industry, but I look at all of the science teachers that I had that made this topic interesting and just shaping the the next generation. And, And there's so many people I could thank, too, for pouring into me and sharing their enthusiasm so I could get excited about science. Oh, yeah. I I always find uh, asking the questions and some of the interns that I've worked with and the co-ops over the years, I tell them, if, if you hear something that you don't know or don't understand, don't just go about wondering. You know, go look it up. Go ask a question. Yeah, yeah, it's you may not get the answer right away, but if you keep asking, you keep pursuing, you'll connect the dots and it will make sense one day. Knowledge is good. And that is a great theme for today's podcast, because uh, what we're going to be talking about, I don't have any experience in. So we're all going to be learning together. So let's just go ahead and reveal what we're going to be starting to talk about. So it's the Steam Electric Generation Effluent Limitation Guidelines. So Bill, please help us. What is that? Well, first off, it's a Environmental Protection Agency EPA rule. Many major industries have their own ELGs, and and this one in particular is for steam electric generation or electric power generation industries. This is a requirement under the Clean Water Act that I came around, I believe it was 1972. And these ELGs for industries are required to be updated every 10 years. ELGs are technology-based limits for various effluent streams that would come from an industry and are one of several criteria that permit writers must consider when they're putting a a discharge permit together for that facility. For the steam electric industry, the most significant recent update was back in 2015. Prior to that, the last time it was updated was back in 1982. So if if we look around just at telephones, computers, and whatnot, yeah, we can recognize the change in technology between 82 and 15. 
a lot of things changed, and that's true for the water treatment industry, water technologies also. Since 2005, EPA began sampling and reviewing data, technology from industry, from technology providers to appropriately update the ELGs as they apply to the various waste streams. The importance of the ELGs is to drive the application of new wastewater treatment technologies to the wastewaters. And as I said uh, earlier, the ELGs are technology driven. You know, what is possible, what is practical. And along with all rules, federal rules, there, there are a lot of boundaries on how things are considered, what can be included, what can't be included. So if we're applying for a discharge permit, we're involved in wastewater, that's where this is going to come into. Absolutely. This is what I would consider the first pass of what a permit writer would have to look at. If we take waste stream A, they got to look at technology-based limits first, and then there's a series of, of other criteria to look at, one of which is the receiving body, what the water quality base limits are for the receiving body. Is it already impaired or not? But it's a hierarchy of criteria that the permit writers have to use. So as somebody out there that is treating wastewater, uh, and now they have a term, what do they now need to do? What, what do they need to know next? <laughs> well, I, first of all, effluent limitation guidelines are, are typically, are, well, actually not typically, they are put out in the Federal Register. And like many federal regulations, they get updated. They have parts and subparts and subchapters. The first thing to do is not just look at the latest revision, because the revisions when they come out are more or less errata sheets. You, you really need to go back and take a look at the rule in its totality. So if you have a specific waste stream, what are you allowed to do? What aren't you allowed to do? There are a lot of exceptions, criteria, specific situations that, that fall into place. So educating yourself on the holistic parts of the rule, how they come into play. Because at the end of the day, you know, with the steam electric industry, typically here we're talking about fossil coal power plants. We're not creating matter. We're not destroying matter. We're, we're playing whack-a-mole, really. We're taking a constituent that started out in the ground in the coal. It's what's left over from the combustion process. We're taking it out of the flue gas, potentially. We're putting it into the water. The water guys are taking it out, and we're putting it in a solid form. The solid waste folks end up putting it in a landfill. It may come back out in the leachate again and goes back to the water folks. We haven't figured out how to stick it all back to the air folks yet, but it's how do we move the materials around? How do we clean up the constituents in the water in a form that they're essentially sequestered? They're, they're moved to a safe location and an environmentally responsible location. You mentioned that this is currently being newly revised. It's been revised a couple of times. What's that process like? <laughs> well, uh, if, if you've been paying attention to the news and you see what happens up in D.C. at times, this process is not that dissimilar. The process starts out with data collection. And 
EPA is in a very tough position because they have a responsibility to protect the environment and they have rules that they need to go by. There are industry groups that are certainly looking out for the best interests of industry, and there are environmental groups that have other agendas on either trying to shut industry down or ostensibly look at what's best for the environment. And EPA needs to walk that tightrope between them because at the end of the day, when the regulations come out, both sides are going to sue them. So how do you protect yourself? With data. Let the facts speak for themselves. Did they follow the rules? So data collection is the first part, and that's what's in the wastewaters. And in fact, when we were first starting some of these data collection efforts uh, years ago, EPA came to one of the sites I was working at, and yttrium was on the list. And I was like, yttrium? Who cares about yttrium? Why do you think there's yttrium? There's no yttrium in the water. And I just think yttrium is such a cool element to pronounce. And I distinctly remember the response that I received from uh, from the EPA person was, well, how do you know it's not in there? We never tested for it. So we collected some data and sure enough, yttrium was not in the water in any appreciable quantities to, to worry about. But there was a basis then where checked off yttrium, we can move on to zinc. So they were going through the alphabet is what they were doing. Well, yeah, I like to say they were going to aluminum to yttrium because aluminum to yttrium just sounds so much better than aluminum to zinc. But yeah, what's important, What's what has the potential to be a constituent of concern? After the data collection, it's what technologies are available. A technology to be available has to be demonstrated somewhere. And if it was demonstrated in a pilot operation somewhere, not necessarily full scale, that's still fair game. And best available technology, a lot of times is shortened to the acronym BAT, uh, but the full definition is best available technology economically available. So there's, there's an economic component to this. Does the removal of the constituents on the available technology, is that a reasonable cost? Uh, so that, that all comes into play. And then there's timing. How soon do folks, uh, specifically industry here, have to implement this technology? And part of that research and evaluation is uh, you just don't go out and buy a system overnight, two months, whatever, there's a three, four, five-year cycle to actually implement the technology, get the constituent components, get construction to, uh, to install it, and then bring it online. So all those go into play. Environmental groups say the EPA is being too lenient. Industry says it's too restrictive. And a good rule, which I really believe the 2020 version was a good uh, version of, of the effluent guidelines for this, was that nobody was happy with it. Everybody didn't get exactly what they want, which meant it was a reasonable compromise, at least in my opinion, because it's a balancing act. And when we're dealing with the electric power industry, we need to recognize that we're not making chemicals, we're not making widgets, we're making electric power. We're making that electricity that we're relying on right now to have this podcast, to have the lights on, to keep our Netflix going and our, our cell phones and our, our various social media running, not to mention cooling and heating our homes and, and whatnot. So, if a site has difficulty implementing the technology, 
the utility certainly wouldn't, wouldn't want to be in violation of the rule. So if they can't afford to put it in, they shut down the site. Well, there's a reason why these power generating units are out there is because there is demand. And many of the electric utilities in our country are regulated utilities. So they have state utility commissions telling them what they can recover their capital investments on, what they can't credit to their base. And ultimately, if it's going to cost an extra $100 million, $200 million to treat something on a regulated utility, who's going to pay for it? Well, it's going to show up in your power bill and my power bill. So that's something that needs to be considered. Uh, how does the cost get passed on? Uh, and that all goes into the equation of how these rules are developed. So as this is in a revision period, is there a role that a practitioner of water treatment needs to play? Can we give information to the EPA or is that not advised? Well, that's actually very advisable. When EPA comes out with a, uh, with a proposed rule, they solicit input. I believe the, the period for, for input or the official period right now uh, has expired. That's usually 90 days after the proposal is, is published. But that's not to say that if there's additional data available, whether it's analytical data or it's technology that is emerging, doesn't mean that EPA won't consider it and won't include it into the docket. So if there are folks that have information yeah, I don't want to speak for the EPA, but in the past, they've been very receptive. They're looking to make sure they're making the best decisions. There's so many rules and regulations out there. So somebody that's very well read on most of them, I'm asking you, you're that person. How do we keep up? How do we know that we're doing the right thing? How do we know that we're not absent of something that nobody told us about? What's the best way to make sure we're keeping up? Uh, I, I would say read up on, on the news, but then also get involved in industry groups, the publications they, they generate. You know, some of the organizations that, that I've, I've looked to over the years, certainly the International Water Conference is a very good forum for exchange of information. And the folks writing the ELGs for many years would attend and they take notes. And some of the conversations during the sessions actually were referenced in some of the permit proceedings across the country. You have folks like the Electric Power Research Institute the North American Metals Council, uh, Edison Electric Institute. Those, those are all good organizations that try to get the information out or certainly share where the direction of, of some of the rules are going and, and certainly can link people to what direction they, they may want to do further research. I, I would say that there's a, there's a lot of emotion and hyperbole that gets out there. Yeah, I've seen comments at public hearings where, you know, shoot, you know, the, the power plant's discharging mercury and arsenic into the river. Okay, that is absolutely correct. But then again, if I'm swimming in the river and just happen to spit or do something else in the river, I'm also discharging arsenic and mercury to the river. And it gets into mass loading as opposed to concentration base. And just some interesting statistics, the, the limits for selenium in, 
that's allowed to be discharged from flue gas desulfurization wastewater, which is one of the big issues here with, uh, uh, with the effluent limitation guidelines. Those limits are almost half of what's allowable in drinking water. The arsenic limits pretty much match up what's in allowable in apple juice. And in fact, FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, mandates a minimum level of selenium in infant formula that far exceeds what's allowed to be discharged by the power plant. So it gets into mass loading. You know, when you're discharging thousands of gallons per day, small concentrations make a big difference. But at the same time, it gets into what's a pollutant versus what's a what I like to say a constituent of concern. When I look at my multivitamin, a lot of the constituents that are in my multivitamin are also regulated on the discharge of water. If you can't live without them, I've argued with, with U.S. attorneys that you really can't call them pollutants. And it's, it's like a bottle of baby aspirin. If, if you look at the baby aspirin, folks that start to get a little older, doctor tells you take a baby aspirin a day. And you can take a baby aspirin every day for the rest of your life, and it has positive effects on you. But if you take the whole bottle at once, it's probably going to kill you. And it's just like a glass of red wine. My, my doctor told me a glass of red wine a day, and I said, well, can I get a prescription for that? And he said, a glass, not a bottle a day. So a little bit's good, too much is bad, and everything in moderation. And that's what the public needs to understand on these effluent limitation guidelines. And there's an analytical aspect of it also. We're potentially measuring or regulating constituents that we have a difficult time measuring that low. Are the analytical methods available? Are they accurate? Even the sampling methods make a difference. So that all comes into play. And I, I know I'm giving you a real long answer to what was a simple question, but you know, the more the public can educate themselves, go to the various sources, ask questions, the better off everybody will be in the long run. Bill, if somebody wants to dive deeper into ELGs or maybe even read some of these regulations themselves, where should they go? Well, probably the easiest place to start is on the EPA's website. Rather than just typing in epa.gov, I would suggest going into your favorite search engine and typing in steam electric effluent limitation guidelines or steam electric ELGs, and that'll give you a link to, to some of the specific pages. If you really have problems sleeping at night, going into one of the law sites, uh, one of the sites that I use is Cornell Law, and typing in the the regulation itself, and rather than just seeing the latest version, it will give you start to finish what the current law of the land is, as opposed to just the, the latest uh, errata. I'll make sure to have some links to those on our show notes page. Let's transition a little bit. You mentioned the International Water Conference, the IWC. I know you have a role within the IWC this year. So uh, I wanted to ask, what is the IWC? And then what are you doing within the IWC this year? Sure. Well, the IWC is the International Water Conference. It's sponsored by the Engineering Society of Western Pennsylvania. And I'm not sure how many years exactly it's been going on, but I, I know we had our 80th anniversary a few years back. I think we're ready for another one coming up here. 
it's a forum for for folks to share lessons learned, to exchange knowledge, and and really networking on a wide range of water treatment technologies, analytical issues related to water treatment, where you have folks that are uh, experts in the field, acknowledged experts in the field, both users, end users, technology providers, engineering firms come together. And it's a, it's a forum where not only are the technical papers presented, but there is a open discussion. There's a formal discussion of the papers by what we would say somebody else that's familiar with the subject. And then there's an open Q&A for the, for the author. So it's a very open technical exchange. I would say the papers presented are peer-reviewed and it occurs annually for, I think, the first 50 plus years it was started out in Pittsburgh and stayed in Pittsburgh. And since then, as, as we've gotten a more national and international following, it's been rotating across the country. My role this year is that I'm the uh, technical program chairman. So I get to review the various abstracts that were submitted lead the group of of individuals that determine what the program needs to be, how to put the abstracts together, and come up with what hopefully will be an interesting and educational program. Along with that, we have something that we call our Emerging Topics Committee. We're always trying to see, okay, what's coming across the horizon here? What's the what's the next interesting hot topic that's coming up? And several years ago, PFAS, those forever chemicals, was brought up, and we had any number of uh, sessions on that. And that's slowly tapering off, and lithium and mining are, are popping up. Microelectronics are becoming more of an interest where power plants, flue gas desulfurization were hot 10 years ago. Now we only have one session dealing with power plants. So we're, we're trying to always stay relevant and current for for the attendees of the of the conference. I find it interesting that legislatures uh, attend and they figure out what the next laws are going to be. What information do we need to know so we can create the next ELG? Oh yeah, yeah. Well the the regulators they come in and you know, they've listened. I'd say they ask some very pointed questions at times and they also want to hear what the rest of us are saying about them at times. But it's my experience, it's always been a, a fun exchange and a very collegial, professional exchange, and it's a, it's a good sharing of information. Now, the IWC, you have this particular role this year, and you transition to another role next year. What is that? Well, ne- next year, I'll be the general chairman of the conference. So I get to provide leadership and make sure that we are maintaining the continuity of the goals of the conference, which are to provide that professional forum to educate the the industry, the water treatment industry, and to just maintain that ongoing exchange of, of knowledge. So obviously, we want people to check out the IWC and see if it's right for them. But what else should they know about the IWC? Well, the conference we have for young professionals that are that are just getting out of school or just getting into the industry, we have a mentoring program 
we try to provide some opportunities for those younger folks to to engage with the folks that have been around. Sometimes we've we've set it up where uh, we can pair them up with a with a, a mentor or a guide at the conference to get some key introductions. There is an opportunity for for vendors to have a show floor or display floor where they can tell about their companies and their services some. And we also have a forum in which folks can do more of a commercial bit. I forgot to mention earlier, though, that the technical program itself is non-commercial. Companies are allowed to mention trade names or the corporate name once in the presentation. But besides that, it's supposed to be generic and references to a technology. You mentioned mentoring several times as we've been speaking today, and that's something that's near and dear to me. I've had several shows just on the topic of mentoring. Can you tell us a little bit about why that's so important to you and what you do to mentor? Sure. For me, why is it important is I believe in pay it forward. I was heavily involved in Boy Scouts in my youth and and as I got a, got older, uh, and I distinctly remember one individual telling us to go out and be a thief. Well, you had a bunch of Boy Scouts and some leaders telling us to be a thief, but but he quickly said after he got our attention with that comment is go out and steal with your eyes and your ears only. And it's watch. What do you see? What do you hear? Learn from that. And I've taken that to heart. I've had, as I mentioned, my chemistry teacher. I had some other teachers, whether it was in high school, whether it was in my college days and my early years as a professional that showed me things, that shared things with me. I had a maintenance supervisor that you know, figured out that a young engineer you know, needed to have some lessons in how the world really works. And you know, that, that was a tremendous education. And so what I try to do now is with my, my junior engineers, my interns and, and whatnot, I try to get them exposed to uh, industry, getting them out into the field, let them get dirty, let them get a little wet at times. And one of the things I, I just had, uh, I just did not too long ago was I try to take the, the college students that are working with me, take them to, to Home Depot or Lowe's or, or somewhere at lunch and take them through the piping aisle. And it's like, this is a globe valve. This is a ball valve. This is a needle valve. And show them what the actual pipe fittings are, what the components are, so they can see them, they can understand how they really work and what the differences are. And it's reading about it's one thing, but seeing it and being able to touch it is another thing. And I've, I've always shared with them that empirical data trumps theory every time. So... Paying forward is, is really my motivation. If somebody wants to get involved in mentoring somebody, what advice would you give them? Take a look at what was important to, to you as an individual as, as you came up in your career. Yeah, if we're talking about career mentoring, professional mentoring, share with them the lessons learned. You know, uh, hopefully they will Uh, be able to learn from the good and avoid the bad. It's sharing experiences. What what did you as a potential mentor take away over your years that was meaningful that you can go ahead and, and share that information? 
I love that answer. There's so many people out there that discredit themselves saying, what do I have to offer somebody to be a mentor? But they have that experience and that's what they're lacking. Oh, yeah. And I need to say that just what needs to be in the forefront of of any sort of mentoring experience or any professional interaction is maintaining safety and passing on the message of ethics. I like to say that any project that we do has to be safe. It needs to be environmentally compliant or regulatorily compliant. It needs to be reliable. And then only after it hits those first three bullets do we worry about economics. Because if we put in something that is the least expensive option that's not safe, it's not compliant, not reliable, then is it really an option? And safety and ethics need to be the forefront of any sort of mentoring and, and, and training for the emerging professionals. That's great advice. And on that great advice, uh, we're going to shift over to just something interesting. I understand you have a connection to John Belushi. <laughs> well, I've over the years, I've, I've done a number of presentations. And one of the slides I like to use is the um, alma mater uh, seal for, for Faber College. And for your listeners that may or may not remember, it's been a few years, Animal House, that's the university there. And the motto of Faber College is knowledge is good. And that really stuck with me. And it's always interesting when when I put that slide up where the glimmer of recognition is across the audience. Yeah, you can you can see some generational differences and yeah, it's it's always fun. But the message, knowledge is good. Yeah, I, I firmly believe that. Well, I've got a few lightning round questions for you. These are questions that I ask all of my guests. So are you ready for those? Sure. Here we go. So uh, if you could go back in time and talk to your former self on your very first day as a chemical process engineer, what advice would you give yourself? Oh, I would say get wet and dirty and listen to the operators. The operators are the ones that really know how things are working and what's really going on, not those fancy procedures that you wrote up. So it's it's getting their input because they're going to do what they're able to do, and they're very critical to listen to and to learn things. And the other item there is when it comes to engineering and science, I hate to say this, that there is no magic because I think it's fun. But when it comes to why something happened, there's always a reason for it. And stuff just doesn't happen. There may be undefined variables, but just be persistent, keep digging, and figure out how to connect those dots. I love that. What are the last few books that you've read? Well, this is going to be certainly diverse. A recent one I read was called The Disappearing Spoon by Sam Keen. I have read that. It is fascinating, and it's, it's about the, the, the history of the elements and some of the anecdotal uh, stories that go along with the discovery and development of, of the elements. And that just goes to my geeky chemical side. Another one was Special Forces Berlin. I actually grew up over in Germany as a quasi-military brat and during the Cold War era. 
And this hit a lot of the, the history of what was going on uh, during the Cold War days when I was in high school and growing up over there. So that, that was most interesting. And then the other, another one that I've recently read, which goes to one of my other passions, is Kentucky Bourbon Whiskey and American Heritage. And distillation and yeah that's a that's a chemical engineering process and yeah i've i've got a little passion there for for the bourbon along the way so now uh jane cuchera who i interviewed back on episode 339 she told me to ask you about bourbon and i'm going to be in kentucky (laughs) uh next year the association of water technologies is having their conference so a couple of us were going to get together we were going to do a bourbon tour what do we need to know Oh, well, you need to know that, first of all, how to drink it. You know, you just don't swallow it. You know, you, you smell it, you sip it, you know, let it come over your tongue and enjoy it. The other thing to know is bourbon, very similar to wine, it depends on what you're pairing it with if you're having a meal. Uh, you can have a completely different palate if you're munching on some some cheese or having some nuts there. You know, or if you're just drinking it straight. But at the end of the day is what's good, that's whatever you like. There are so many different types and flavors and varieties out there. So life's too short to drink stuff you don't enjoy. I think that's great advice, whoever you are. When Hollywood finds out about the script of your life, who do you want playing you? Oh, that was a tough one. And yeah, I, I had to pull the audience on this one and got a few few ideas there but i, I gotta say probably tom hanks yeah when i and i yeah he's got the curly hair and he's got the gray beard now also but he's he's played a number of roles over the years that yeah i, I think fit yeah, and as i'm buying a as, a as i'm moving to a new house now uh the money pit comes to mind first of all but yeah on the non-professional side of things but yeah tom hanks Final question, if you could talk to anybody throughout history, who would it be with and why? Without hesitation, I'd say Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens. I always saw him as a great storyteller, and his stories are about real people and events and essentially turning real life into into fun parables. And I I just think that would be a fascinating sit-down, and I believe he drinks bourbon also, so there's probably something to share there along with the stories. There you go. Well, hey, thank you so much for educating us about ELGs, getting us to think about some of the regulations that are out there and how we can take an active role. And we'll, of course, have all of the notes on that and the IWC and all the other things that we talked about. So thanks so much for coming on the Scaling Up H2O podcast. I certainly enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. I got the pleasure of meeting Bill at the International Water Conference. I not only met Bill, I met the entire board of the IWC at the conference, and I was so honored. I was their keynote speaker this past year, and that was so much fun. I met so many wonderful people there, met a lot of Scaling Up Nation members there at the conference, and I'm pretty sure we gained a lot of new members to the Scaling Up Nation at that conference. So 
To the entire IWC board, I want to thank you for allowing me to meet not only you, but your entire audience. It truly was a pleasure working with you. And for those of you that are members of the Association of Water Technologies, I've actually asked the board if I could speak at their conference. So if you know anybody on the board, let them know that I would absolutely love to do the keynote speech at the Association of Water Technologies. And that's one of my favorite conferences, just like the IWC. So hopefully I will see you at one of those conferences in the near future. And I have to say, it has just been so delightful to meet all of these other trade organizations that understand how we're all in this together to raise the bar in the industrial water treatment industry. We are all stronger together and we can raise that bar so much higher when we work together. So I wanna thank every conference, every association out there that we are working with it really does make my job so much easier, so much more fun. And of course, I get to meet more people, which I absolutely love. I love meeting people in this industry. And one of my favorite questions to ask is how did they get in this industry and nation? It is very rare that I get the same answer twice. There are so many unique ways that we all get into the industrial water treatment industry. And of course, somebody that we are so happy found their way into the industrial water treatment industry is our friend James McDonald. And here is a brand new periodic water table with James. Hello and welcome to the periodic water table with James, where we think and learn about water chemistry drop by drop. Please use your week to search online, ask your colleagues, or even pick up a book to learn more about each week's periodic water table topic. If you do, at the end of the year, you'll be 52 water chemistry smarter. So let's raise the water table of knowledge together and get started. Today's topic is ACH or aluminum chlorohydrate. What is ACH used for? What is its chemical formula? Does it have a single chemical formula? Would it be classified as organic or inorganic? What impact could it have on sludge production based upon other similar chemicals? What form or forms does it come in? Solid, liquid, or gas? How is ACH used outside of industrial water treatment within the world we live? Remember, knowledge is power. And taking the time to learn more about water chemistry each week will help make you a force to be reckoned with. Be sure to post what you learn to social media and tag it with hashtag watertable23 and hashtag scalinguph2o. I look forward to learning more from you. Thank you, James. Be sure to tune in next Friday for a brand new episode of Scaling Up H2O. In the meantime, I hope you not only take care of your systems, take care of yourself. Have a great week, folks.
Scaledown Nation, are you getting ready to take your certified water technologist examination? Do you wish you just had a little bit of extra help to build your confidence so you can sign up for the exam? Well, Nation, I've heard you and I've got what you were asking for. I work each one of the 75 mock questions that you receive when you sign up to take your certified water technologist designation. I share with you the logic behind how I get to certain answers, and I show you how to set up each math equation. Go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash CWT prep. Once again, that's scalinguph2o.com forward slash CWT prep to get enrolled today.